HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. Welcome back to me, and welcome to my listeners. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in the back of, uh, in the back garden of Roberta's. Man, it's been a few weeks. Totally lost my rag here. Um, but anyway, here we are, Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and um, we will be, I hope, talking soon with Professor Andy Smith from the new school, a professor of food studies there. He is slated to appear to talk about his new book about tuna fish and the rise and fall of an improbable um, fish. As we all know, tuna is sort of like um, the baby boomers comfort food. But unfortunately, uh, Professor Smith has not yet arrived. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to talk to you a little bit about um, some of the things that are going to be coming up uh, this season. I mean, first, I have to say this is a little bit funny to me, because um, even though it's really annoying when your guest is late or doesn't show up, in fact, it's like devastating. But um, the fact is that last year when I first launched this show, my guests were Kathy Gunst, Catherine Alford, and unexpectedly, the wonderful Libby Summers, who had been booked, but nobody had told me. So um, so the three of us, uh, Kathy and Catherine and I, arrived literally with a 30 seconds to spare. We slid into our chairs and immediately uh, then we had to integrate Libby into our group, whom none of us knew. But it worked out. It was a great show. And uh, my thanks to all those ladies um, a year later for making such a wonderful debut for me. So here we are again, season two for Straight No Chaser. And um, once again, a little bit of a rocky start to the to the season. But um, one thing I can promise you is that this season is going to be um, very much focused 
focused on two or three specific topics. Um, next week, for example, I have Temple Grandin coming on. Um, she is the uh, animal handling expert who has been uh, extremely important in changing the ways that we manage uh, animal protocols in livestock production. And so she has uh, created with the um, National Meat Association, she has created a new video uh, that demonstrates animal handling protocols. And this came just, this was happening just as the latest uh, incredible scandal erupted um, with the Central Valley meat um, packing uh um, situation a few weeks ago in which um, downer cattle were seen or inhumane treatment was seen. It was another one of those scandals that really is so unnecessary and frankly probably pretty unusual. But in any case, Temple um, rushed this production through and the um, that video can be seen on her website or if you just... Um, uh, Google animal handling, you'll see uh, this new protocol that she's putting together. And part of the reason that I've asked Temple to come on is to talk about something that is very near and dear to her heart, as well as anybody else who's, um, you know, is looking for humane handling practices. And that is um, transparency within the cattle industry or any livestock industry. And so what that means, as far as she's concerned, is installing a constant video stream that is audited by a third party. And later in the season, we're going to talk with a couple of different industry experts about that um, and about other issues that surround the cattle industry. Because let's face it, folks, um, industrial livestock production is not going to go away. And it behooves us to make sure that they engage in practices that we can all feel comfortable with, rather than saying that they can't exist, because that's just not going to happen. You can't feed a planet, you can't feed a burgeoning population um, without the kinds of efficiencies that they've developed. And it, to their credit, um, they really have found ways to produce very cheap food. And that is ultimately what Americans asked for. I mean, since World War II, Americans looked for ways to spend less and less of their paycheck on food. And we got exactly what we asked for. And now everybody is upset that those same practices that have been so efficient and have been so um, generous in providing us with cheap food actually turn out to have some downsides. And so rather than expect industry to transform itself overnight, I think it's important to work with industry to create the changes that we're all looking for. And that includes um, safer food and better handling practices in the livestock industry. So that's going to be one big focus. Another big focus of the show in the coming weeks is going to be the use of antibiotics in the livestock sector. There's been a lot of press around uh, antibiotic-resistant or uh, pathogens, diseases that no longer respond to the common antibiotics that have been used routinely to treat human illness. And there's a very good reason for that. And that is that antibiotics have been grossly overused in the last 50 years. Oh, here's my guest now. I see I'm coming. Um, so we'll be talking a lot about that. And then um, some of the other pro programs that are coming up will be um, a wonderful guy who runs a um, uh, something called the Barf Blog. Hey, Andy. How you doing, man? You Don't be all sweaty and upset. It's okay. Oh, I had man, plenty to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Would you believe I got lost coming here? I'm about the Aww. 20th time. 
Oh my gosh. Well, put on your headphones and get yourself settled and we'll have a chat in a minute. Um, So Doug Powell is going to come on. He's a professor of uh, microbiology at Kansas State University, which is one of our big ag universities. And he's going to be talking about microbiology in the livestock sector. And that means about, that means a lot about, um, about Salmonella, E. coli, uh, Campylobacter, all the diseases that have been making it into the news, whether you read trades or not. Um, But that stuff is all very much part of, um, part of our food chain and part of what President Obama was trying to rectify when he signed the Food Safety Modernization Act, which has yet to see the light of day thanks to the stonewalling in Congress about deciding on the regulations involved in that. Um, Later in the season, we're going to talk more about urban agriculture and vertical farming. Um, I just met somebody who has a a viable and working vertical farm out in the Los Angeles area. I'm anxious to hear what they're producing, how much they're producing, and how that's going. I hope to have Dr. Dixon de Pommier on that show as well. Um, we have the beautiful and, and fascinating Libby Summers, who's a really fantastic cookbook author, but also somebody who is very much involved in um, better quality food and, and lobbying for better quality food uh, across the board. So she's always a fun interview. And Dr. Richard Raymond is going to be coming in. Now, he's my cattle industry expert, one of the many that I've invited onto the show. I've had Raul Baxter, um, who is a lobbyist and a consultant to the industry. I've had Chuck Jolly, who's a public relations manager for the industry. Um, So now we're going to have Dr. Richard Raymond, who is also... um, He's a safety expert, a food safety expert. So he'll be very interesting, and I plan to grill him, uh, put his feet to the fire about antibiotics in the food chain. I'm also working really hard to get a veterinarian's perspective on antibiotics in livestock agriculture. I think it's important to understand what will happen if um, antibiotics are withdrawn suddenly from the livestock sector. And I think that uh, expecting that to happen overnight, again, is a bit of a... (laughs) know a bit of a chimera it ain't going to happen folks but it's definitely something that we should all be lobbying for and certainly lobbying our um elected representatives so that's a little bit of what i'm going to be focusing on in the coming weeks and now let me present my wonderful guest professor andrew f smith from the new school a professor of um, food studies there and uh, one of my favorite people and one of my favorite guests he's also the author of numerous books on the history of food such as fast food and junk food an encyclopedia of what we love to eat potato a global history and many many more he joins us today to discuss his latest opus American Tuna, The Rise and Fall of an Improbable Food, which was published just recently by the University of California Press. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> it's great Trust to see me. you. You're looking wonderful. Trust me. It's good to be here. I bet. What happened? You got lost? Would you believe I got lost? A Brooklyn native and a you got Brooklyn lost? A Brooklyn native who's Aww. traveled here a dozen different times, yeah. and each time by walking, and this time I made one wrong turn. Oh, dear. <laughs> I, You know, I can I can well imagine how... I was actually feeling a little bit concerned because there was a shooting on Bedford Avenue and... Um, not far from here. It was Bedford and something. And I know that's on the way from one of the subway stations because when I take an alternate route here, I thought, oh my God, I hope he hasn't been mugged or something because there are some sketchy neighborhoods in this area. This was after the West Indian Parade last week. What? There what, were three people the, were what's murdered. What's subway? I don't understand that. I walk. I know, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm green. You know, I'm double green. Yeah, but some of us live on the Upper West Side until I can <laughs> walk on water, time. babe. <laughs> Wait a minute. If anybody could do it, Katie, it's you. Well, <laughs> Andy, how very sweet of you. Why, thank you. My halo is glowing, obviously. Um, so let's talk. Let's jump right in because, um, oh, my God, we're already 10 minutes past the hour. Now, tuna, 
is iconic for all kinds of reasons, mostly stemming from, I think, from the baby boomers' experience of things like tuna noodle casserole, tuna salad, mm, etc. Um, but it has not always been so popular. So why don't you take us through the early history of the industry and the people who championed what had been commonly called a trash fish? That, that was one of the things that interested me in writing about tuna in the first mm-hmm. place, was the fact that very few Americans ever ate tuna prior to the 20th century. Amazing. And so a question was why, because tuna was common on the East Coast, West Coast and even in the Gulf. So um, also in multiple species too. In multiple species, and um, and as all we all know today, it's, it tastes delicious. So the question was, why did that? And th- there's not a really good answer for it, other than to say that Englishmen and their heritage that uh, was established here in America didn't eat tuna. Uh, that was really a Mediterranean fish, and so they ate cod. And there were lots of other alternatives. And in addition to that, bluefin, which uh, can be very large fish, can be 1,500 pounds, um, it would go through one side of the fisherman's net, eat the fish on the inside, then go out the other side oh, and brother. have their flipper wave in the in the distance saying, thank you very much. Just like the star-kissed guy. What was his name? Charlie the Charlie Tuna. Charlie the Tuna. This is the 50th anniversary of Charlie the Tuna. Oh, We've my God. Hit it. This is important. <laughs> I love so, that. So, in any case, fishermen really disliked uh, bluefin in, in particular, and um, there there were uh, not a lot of easily caught tuna that were available on the East Coast, but on the West Coast, um, there were lots of tuna, and people just were into sardines, and they were into salmon, and so those were the two major fish that Americans ate. So most Americans simply didn't eat it. It isn't until you have immigration from the Mediterranean, uh, particularly those people from uh, former Yugoslavia, Croatia, um, and, and, and Italy, Italy. And, and Portugal, and the Azores that were very the loved tuna and if by chance a tuna was caught in the fish market they they would uh, eat it but and it was mad cheap it was it was the least costly fish and it remains so uh, today uh, so you have a very inexpensive fish that was on the market and uh, one of which uh, has high in protein and high in nutrition so there were lots of good reasons on why Americans should have been eating it but simply didn't um so one of the things that you bring up is that um tuna fishing gave rise to some of the earliest regulations in the fishing industry. It was the first time that fishing, you know, that quotas or some sort of uh, regulation around fishing had been Im- you know, imposed on fishermen. What happened, and why? And why did that? Why did that? What were the politics about that? It really starts from the sports fishing end, which I didn't. I totally didn't have, unexpected. I, to, totally unexpected for me because sports fishing, of course, begins with freshwater fish. And historically, what you would do is you would use a net to catch your fish in freshwater or on river. You just net the river and then catch whatever you could, or you'd throw dynamite into a lake. I mean, and then pick wow. whatever surfaced on the. Thing. I mean, the goal was to get the most amount of fish that you could in the shortest period of time. Well, relatively quickly on the East Coast, uh, the the freshwater fish began to disappear. And so states stepped in and said, we're going to have regulations here, and this is the way that you can catch fish, etc. And the sports fishing industry, which emerged out of the upper class, they didn't want to spend their time during the summer in the cities, which were rampant with disease at that time. And so consequently, uh, they started to develop all these nice rules that you had to use a rod and a reel, and you had to use a hook, and it could only be this way and that way. And so all these rules were established. So, uh, but they were not applied to uh, uh, saltwater fishing. That was still a commercial activity. And it really isn't until um, the uh, Santa Catalina Tuna Club is launched in the late 
19th century that they begin to apply the same principles that were established in freshwater to saltwater. Well, they become concerned when tuna and other uh, saltwater fish begin to disappear from commercial fishing. And so they start pressing first the California legislature to start passing rules saying you can't do commercial fishing within X miles of this, then tried to set aside. So it was really a bunch of rich guys getting together it's, and saying, hey, you... <laughs> You, you Japanese, et cetera, and, and, and various other ethnic groups that were doing the sane fishing, purse sane fishing, which is like netting. Partly, but um, Katie, you're being sexist here. It's not just the guys. Which also, really? What also surprised me is that there were women who were, from the beginning, admitted into the tuna clubs. And when they caught a, a tuna, it made front page news. Amazing. I, you, you know, you sit back and say, somebody catches a tuna. <laughs> Talk about a slow news day, man. <laughs> You're going to catch a tuna and you're on the front page. Uh, well, we are talking about the LA Times at that time, which was not one of the world's greatest newspapers. And, um, and But other newspapers, too, picked up these stories, and magazines picked up these stories. So all of a sudden, tuna, which was not consumed, even by those who were doing the sports fishing, they just had their picture taken with the fish converted it into either something that would look nice over the mantelpiece or alternately converted it into fertilizer or if they really didn't want the fish those who really had manners would take the fish out a mile beyond uh, the shore and dump it so that it wouldn't end up Amazing. on the shore that's incredible absolutely incredible now um one of the things that you you go into great description uh you know uh, description of is the Japanese immigrant population um, that were sort of the premier tuna fishers because, of course, the Japanese have been eating tuna. And um, and they were also the first to create kind of an organized labor movement to work with the canneries. So explain what was happening there, because organized labor was really not happening at the very beginning of the 20th century, which is when the Nisai and the Isai, is that, yeah. am I saying that right? That's correct. The immigrant populations were dominant in uh, West Coast uh, tuna fishing. Yeah, labor unions, as we know it, really uh, come to the fore during the Depression. Mm -hmm. this, they exist before that time, but that is when they become very powerful. The exception is in the tuna industry, very early on, the Japanese Americans, people who m were born in Japan but uh, lived in uh, America, and many of their children who were born in America and were therefore automatically American citizens would begin to um, work together. They were by far the best fishermen for tuna, and they they didn't control the industry, but they caught 70 to 80 percent of the tuna catch. Amazing. And so therefore, uh, they had a lot of power, and when they decided that they weren't going to go out and catch fish for the amount that the tuna canneries were giving them, then they went on strike, and they went on strike on several different occasions. And, um, and that would have brought the canning industry more or less to its knees. Until and the canning industry tried to get alternate people, and there were certainly some other good tuna fishermen from uh, particularly from the Mediterranean that came in and were doing a good job, but they could not ever match the quantity uh, of the fish that were caught by the Japanese. So the tuna industry regularly uh, caved in to the Japanese fishermen, but they made a profit on this. So all it meant was that they just passed on the, the cost to the consumer. And still, even with the added cost of additional labor costs there, tuna remained America's least costly protein source. So, um, it, you know, it didn't really... By that time that they went on strike, the Americans had already become familiarized with tuna and were already eating it. So it worked out very nicely. Amazing. Um, Joe, let's take a short break for a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Professor Andy Smith uh, talking about tuna. This program is called Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. 
All of us at Kane Vineyard and Winery are proud to support Heritage Radio Network and the growing movement to change the way we eat and think about our planet. For more information, go to Kane5.com. And we're back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's restaurant at 261 Moore Street, where brunch is being served. I'm going to take a quick moment to tell folks today um, that we are having our fabulous Heritage membership drive party. Um, this is going to be an extraordinary event. It starts at 5 p.m. at Roberta's. Uh, you can still buy. There's a few tickets left. You can go to our Facebook page or go to um, heritageradionetwork.org uh, to get information about how to purchase tickets. If you want to come uh, and you would like to uh, get a $50 coupon, you can just type in No Chaser when you get to the Eventbrite page. Um, some of the best chefs and best brewers and best mixologists are going to be at this event, including Mike Anthony from Gramercy Tavern, one of the really premier chefs in the United States, and a whole lineup of other guys that are too numerous for me to even mention right now. But do um, take a look at the Facebook page and see whether or not you want to have time, if you have time to come down or if you feel like supporting the network, um, you get a membership for this and you get three hours of absolutely... um, tons as much free drink and eats as you can consume in a three-hour period so i urge you to check it out what date was that again that's today Ah, at 5 p.m 5 p.m today yes so um we've been promoting it we literally only have like five or ten tickets left but you know as long as people if people are listening and they want to come it'd be great to see you you get to meet all the heritage hosts and lots of interesting people in the food industry um not the least of which would be the wonderful brian kenny from hearst ranch one of our best sponsors so anyway back to my guest andy smith uh, a professor at the New School talking about his new book, Tuna, The Rise and Fall, fall of an Improbable Food. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, when did the turning point come for tuna where it went from being a trash fish to being the popular food that it is now? And also, the other thing that I didn't include in my outline, but I did want to talk about is the canning of it. Yeah. Like how they figured out, because in the very beginning, the first experiments, tuna looked like dog meat. It they was failed. too dark. Yeah, it was ugly. Failed. People didn't want it. It smelled. It was too strong. Yeah. What happened? Uh, well, it really uh, started off when uh, sardines disappeared from the California coast. They're, they're migratory species, and sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. And the canning company that existed in San Pedro, California, had a question. What, what do they do now with their canning facility? Do they shut it down, or do they try alternate fish? So they actually canned three different types of fish, of which albacore was one. And um, the albacore, the problem was it's an oily fish, which may have been one of the reasons on why Americans didn't like it to begin with. And secondly, when they canned the dark, uh, the red part of the uh, meat, it turned uh, an unpleasant brown color. I'll phrase it that way. Um, and, um, and it didn't taste right. So they had to experiment. And they experimented for five years with different ways of doing it. And they finally concluded that they had a good solution to get the uh, fish oil out. Um, and used, they only canned the white meat of the tuna, which about 25% of the albacore. Um, and and they found very quickly that uh, this tasted very it was very mild tasting. Initially, they canned it in olive oil. You you can buy canned tuna in olive oil today, and if you do, it's delicious. Uh, so it has a flavor all of its own. So they really ended up with a good product. But the problem was, how do you convince Americans to buy a fish that they'd never bought before? So um, they 
they tried all the normal techniques, and the, the one that worked was, it tastes like chicken. Yeah, I think that must be where that <laughs> phrase originated from, tastes like chicken. No, I thought that too. And when I got into it, I found out that the phrase, it tastes like chicken, had been applied to numerous foods prior to that time, <laughs> veal being an example of it, yep. uh, and all sorts of other th- other foods that were there. So uh, I thought that was the case, and so I started doing my Googling on it tastes like chicken, uh, and all of a sudden I got all these other things going well, well into the early 90s. 19th century. So that was a phrase that was used that uh, it helped Americans understand that all you needed to do was take your chicken recipes and replace the chicken with the tuna. So uh, in well, this, that had some very improbable. I mean, you quoted sure. some really improbable recipes. Well, they ended up with a lot of improbable. <laughs> I was hoping you'd mention that. <laughs> I thought I mean, we're like, every, oh my God, every recipe me. that you could think of that had an alternate fish mainly salmon for instance you substituted the tuna for the salmon uh, but you couldn't taste you couldn't say it tastes like salmon because salmon was your major competitor so but it tastes like chicken and that sounded good enough so the early recipes for tuna, tuna salad for instance were chicken salad recipes that were placed in and I, I and this is not one of your favorites but it is my tuna noodle casserole the, although the recipe itself as we know and love it is a product of the late 1930s the tuna casserole recipes were there from the beginning so you really just replaced chicken in a chicken casserole and replaced it with tuna so that ends up with a whole series of recipes and one of the reasons on why americans um, began to buy it and very shortly five years it took them to develop the product five years after that a large number of americans were consuming tuna um Fascinating. Well, one of the things that you point out in the book is that World Wars One and Two had a tremendous impact on the rise of tuna in the American diet. Yeah, but both of the wars had the same influence. the The first World War One, you had rationing in of beef, and our allies needed protein. And again, the cheapest protein that you could get on the market at the time was canned tuna. So you had a massive orders from uh, both the the U.S. federal government for the Army, as well as from our allies, uh, France, um, Italy, and um, the United and England. So, well, and also, uh, you know, chicken and beef were not tinned at that time, particularly, were they? Uh, no. So you you had you had a hard time transporting. It. In this case, tuna's yeah. tuna's easy to can, and right. they're not the small cans that we think of today. They're really one pound, two pound, five pound cans. Sure. So we weren't talking about the small stuff. Um, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to jump ahead in this. Um, there was a big hue and cry. I remember this in the '70s and 80s uh, about the decimation of dolphins and porpoises in tuna fishing. So what did they do to make that happen, to make that stop? Well, let me tell you why it started in the first place. There's different species of tuna, and one of the species is yellowfin. And yellowfin in the eastern Pacific, for totally unknown reasons, lots lots of speculation, uh, yellowfin travel underneath tuna. Or excuse me, travel underneath uh, dolphins, oh. or or dolphins uh, travel above tuna. Whatever the result is, if you're a fisherman, not a problem because the problem is how do you find the yellowfin? And the answer is you look for air-breathing mammals. In this case, dolphin. Find the dolphin. Put your nets around the dolphin, and the likelihood is you're going to catch an awful lot of yellowfin. And historically, that's how yellowfin becomes a very important part of American uh, tuna canning. But at the same time, you're going to catch a lot of dolphin and. When they when this first came to light, the best estimates were they were killing a million dolphins plus a year. Now they've 
they cut it down by using different techniques, but in the end, um, dolphins are, for yellowfin tuna, dolphins are, are still die in the process of tuna, um, catching tuna. So th- that, is, that continues to be a problem. And just uh, this year, uh, the World Trade Organization ruled against the United States, saying the label on the canna, canning um, cans of American tuna saying dolphin-free are, in fact, not dolphin-free. So, wow. So, um, so keep that in mind when you buy your tuna, so, folks. Yeah, but if you order, if you get albacore, if you get anything other than yellowfin, uh-huh. there's no dolphins associated with it. But do the cans actually identify what species of tuna it is? I no, don't remember if seeing that. If it's out, al- yeah, al- albacore is usually identified it does because say it's, albacore, it's a more yeah. little more expensive sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And any white tuna would not be. Um, uh, yeah, but the light tuna is typically yellowfin. So um, ah, that's so chunk light as opposed to chunk white. That, so look for your chunk white. That's correct. But even you're not guaranteed that dolphin um, were killed in that process, but likely that was the case. And um, because we are winding up here, um, there are and have been for quite a while health concerns about tuna and methylmercury. Are those ongoing? Um, yes and no. Uh, the, the studies for the last 40 years, this has been an issue, and there certainly remains controversy in it. My best conclusion, um, which is looking at virtually all of the data that I could find, Unless you consume uh, 15 to 20 cans of white tuna a day, (laughs) every single day for a a prolonged period of time, the likelihood is this is not going to affect you. There is no evidence that methylmercury in tuna or fish in general have ever harmed any American. Now, there there have been problems in other countries, but But they tell pregnant women not to eat fish more than two or three times a day. And what about that actor? No, no, no. With with pregnant women, that's a little more complicated Uh because um, at least some of the studies suggest that the fetus cannot easily get rid of the methylmercury. Methylmercury is an organic compound. It's a heavy metal, yeah. No, it's not a heavy metal. It's an organic compound. It goes, if the mercury itself, it goes right through your body and as long as it's small amounts, it goes right out in a matter of a couple days. Methylmercury is organic and it goes into your body and its half-life is about 60 days. So the problem is it can accumulate over time and the fear is that the fetus is not able to get rid of the methylmercury the way an adult uh, human body can. And so if I had any recommendation and again this is based on controversial conclusions my conclusion is i i would not uh, e- recommend to a woman who is pregnant or planning on becoming pregnant um white tuna uh, again in this case yellowfin doesn't have any methylmercury in it so you got your trade so if you don't mind eating your porpoise if you yeah. got, well you don't eat porpoise but if you don't mind killing your porpoise in the process yeah. of doing that so you got trade-offs um Damn, Andy. Well, you know what? We got to wrap it up here, my friend. But I want you to, you have an upcoming event. And I want you to tell people about that, and I also want them, you to tell them about your website. So. I was hoping you, I was hoping you'd ask. Absolutely. On uh, September twenty fourth, we have a uh, uh, an all tuna dinner, uh, or at least mostly tuna dinner at the Roger Smith Hotel, beginning at six o'clock at night. It happens to be um, uh, advertised and promoted on my website, andrewfsmith.com, dot com, um, with a long with a long list of other publications at other events that we're going to be running during the next As few months. As somebody who has attended quite a few of these events at the Roger Smith Hotel, I have to tell folks, this is so worthwhile. You, you, you know, somebody who is an expert on any given topic in food comes up, gives a presentation, talks about their book, answers questions from the audience. Meanwhile, you get to eat and drink basically as much as you want, especially the drinking part is really excellent. And you get a dinner that is prepared about whatever the topic is at, at hand. And it's all so, the- 
all the recipes are special recipes. Yeah. In theory, taken And the from, food is really excellent. The, the recipes are, in theory, taken from the book. But as I have historical recipes in there, they're not going to have some of the bizarre things well, that perhaps. are here. Sorry about that. <laughs> Tuna croquettes. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Oh, they're good. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Anyway, I really recommend those events. Do take a look at Andy's website. And next week, please tune in again. Temple Grandin will be joining me to discuss her new animal handling video and transparency in the cattle industry. And then we're off to the races, folks. It's going to be a great season. I hope you'll tune in again and again to Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My thanks to my guest, Andy Smith, and to my engineer, Joe, and to the Heritage Radio Network. See you next week, folks. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 